Well, good morning once again. Hey, uh, we're going to put this little QR code up for just a little bit here, but if you uh, want, you can scan that or go to gatewaychurch.net slash info. You can even bookmark that page. That'll give you access to our information card, get you access to our message notes and our announcements. One of the announcements, though, that didn't make it at least into our announcement video that I wanted to highlight is for Easter Sunday. Um, on Easter Sunday and the Saturday night service that we're doing too, which I want to remind you, if you could, uh, maybe think about choosing to go on to the Saturday night service at 6 o'clock for that and uh, maybe invite someone to that. Maybe you could switch churches, you know, and you can check out their Easter service on Sunday. Just don't end up going there. But, uh, you know... <laughs> come to our Saturday night service or whatever, but that'll help with some of the crowds, especially with COVID. We wanted to add a third service on Easter. But on Easter, uh, we're going to be taking up a special offering. And our goal is to raise $10,000 above and beyond our regular giving to go towards our recovery house. Uh, If you don't know much about this, there was a great article that was just published in Christian Standard Magazine about our recovery house. We have three men living there, uh, and they're, they're doing great in their recovery. But we would like to expand that and, uh, by adding more space in the basement of that house so we can have more residents. So that's what this $10,000 would be used to go towards finishing up those renovations and provide a little more hope for maybe three more guys. So if you can give uh, above and beyond your regular giving, we would really love to put that towards this special project. So that's going to be our Easter offering. Well, to the message, uh, for those of you who are sports fans, have you ever watched, say, a basketball game and a young player uh, just all of a sudden has this breakout performance? You know, like a guy who hardly ever plays normally and maybe gets like four points a game in a normal game, all of a sudden shoots lights out, scores 30 points in a game, and and people, when that happens, they're pulling out their phones, they're looking this guy up, checking what school he went to, checking out his stats, and they're asking, who is this guy? What's his name again? Is it Oral Roberts or something like that? That was painful. (laughs) But (laughs) they're asking the question, who is this guy? Well, we started a series last week uh, focusing on Jesus When Jesus came onto the scene and he began his public ministry, people had never heard someone teach the way he taught. People had never seen anyone do the things that he had done or he was doing. They had never seen anyone care for people and love people the way Jesus cared and loved for people. And they began to ask, who is this guy? Who is this man? That's a great question to ask, isn't it? And so in this series, we're trying to answer that question. And by answering that question, I truly believe that as we get to know him more, we will love him more. We will worship him more. We want to serve him more. So last week, we looked in the the Gospels to see one aspect of Jesus. We found that he was a friend of sinners. A friend of sinners. This morning, we want to ask that question, who is Jesus or who is this man? by looking at at it from a different angle. And we're going to see Jesus as compassionate healer. He was a compassionate healer. You know, when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, it unleashed all sorts of corruption and evil. Sickness, disease, mental illness, natural disasters, viruses, addictions, cancers, autism, just to name a few of the things that came into existence because of sin. There is so much sickness in our world. And it manifests itself in so many different ways. And because of this, people are desperate. 
People are desperate. They're hurting. They feel hopeless and helpless and they need healing. And their main question in life is the same question that King Zedekiah asked of the prophet Jeremiah. He said, is there any word from the Lord? Like, where, where is he? Will he show up? When we are desperately sick, that's what we want to know too. And almost everyone has experienced some sort of sickness or some sort of feeling of hopelessness. Henry David Thoreau once said, most men live lives of quiet desperation. Most men live lives of quiet desperation. And I'm sure if we were to examine the inner thoughts of our minds, there would be many desperate people in this room. When you're terminally ill or a loved one is living with some sort of debilitating disease, it, it affects every part of our lives. And to be honest, it's really hard to focus on anything else. Some of you, uh, you know that my wife, Sarah, her mom has not been in great health for, for quite a while now. And so she's lived by herself but had someone like home health coming in about three times a week to help with some things. And then Sarah would go down at least once a week to help out with some things around the house. Well, this past September, uh, on a Sunday evening, Sarah had called her mom, talked with her, and uh, checked in on her. And then after they were done talking, uh, they hung up. And, and the next day was a Monday, and she had home health coming to check on her. And then Sarah called her Tuesday. And when she called, there was no answer. But that's really not all that uncommon because her, her mom sleeps really weird hours. And so she was just going to, if her mom didn't call back, she would just call her again Wednesday. And so she was going to call her right after school on Wednesday. And before she could do that, Sarah got a call from uh, her mom's home health worker. And the worker said that she had been trying to visit her mom a couple times and hadn't been able to get in, but her car was outside. So Sarah immediately tried calling her mom, and there was no answer. And so we hopped in the car, and we drove to Knoss City, calling 911 on the way. And when we got there, her mom was lying on the floor. She had a gash in her head, and she, what we come, came to find out, she had a broken femur. She had fallen Sunday after Sarah had talked to her. And uh, she hit her head when she fell, broke her femur, and couldn't get up. And so she'd been laying there till the ambulance arrived, and she had not brought her phone with her. It was in another room. And so she was left there. And after this had happened, it was hard to focus on anything else but getting care for her mom. Uh, we were desperate to make sure that she was properly cared for, desperate to make sure that she was safe, desperate to make sure she was on the road to healing and, and uh, I'll just apologize now if we missed some pastoral needs back in that time because when you're in that situation, that's all you can think about. Because of sickness in our world, so many people are desperate. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app, I'd like for you to open up to Luke chapter 8. And in this chapter, Luke records the story of two people who turned to Jesus in their desperation. They were desperate for healing. Now, these two people were very, very different in their status in life, but they had one thing in common. They were both distressed and they had nowhere to turn but to Jesus. So let's look at the story. And what we're going to find out is it's really a story within a story. This event that we're going to read about happens once Jesus returned to Galilee after restoring the, the health and the sanity of a demon-possessed man in the region of the Gerasenes. This is what we read in verse 40, Luke 8, verse 40. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. 
Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. So Jairus was this leader uh, in the synagogue in Capernaum. He was a well-known religious leader. And what we know about religious leaders of that day, of Jesus' day, is that many of them were skeptical of Jesus. Many of the religious leaders tried to silence Jesus or they were outright, uh, they outright rejected Jesus as some imposter. And many of them were actually plotting to kill Jesus. But this religious leader, Jairus, he goes to Jesus for help. Why? Because he's desperate. He was desperate and he didn't care what people thought. And there are Few things that will panic you more than a child getting sicker and sicker by the minute. His 12-year-old daughter was sick and she was dying. Some of you know my middle daughter, Anna. She was up here singing this morning. She's 13 years old and she's had some medical issues that have been perplexing to us and, and to doctors as well. One of those issues is that she could sit for like 20 to 30 minutes and then when she gets to stand up, her legs stiffen up. And she, she has to walk like an old lady. And it takes a while for, her, for them to kind of get back to normal. And so she, she pulls her leg muscles really easy. And it's, it's been really frustrating for her. Like it's limited some things that she's wanted to do physically. I, I'm so proud that she's using her musical gifts and other things. But, but it's hard on her. Now this isn't anything life-threatening like what Jairus was dealing with with his daughter. But we've been to doctor after doctor after doctor for this. We've done testing after testing. We've gone to doctors around here. We've seen rheumatologists at the Children's Hospital in Columbus and in Cleveland Clinic. We visited pediatric ortho orthopedic specialists, visited with pediatric muscular disorder specialists, uh, desperately trying to find an answer for, for what's going on with our daughter. And the next step is probably some genetic testing because the last test we just had this weekend didn't reveal anything. But her, her ailment drives us to seek out answers so that she can experience healing. Now again, our situation isn't near to the extent of that of Jairus, but as a father, I understand this desperation and I'm sure many of you would too. Or maybe if you've been in that case too. We'll travel miles and miles on end, do test after test. We got to do something. We'll try anything, right? And Jairus had to do something, even if it meant seeking out someone that might hurt his reputation. He didn't care. He'd heard people talking about this guy who was performing miracles, this miracle worker man, how he'd healed people. And so Jairus went, even though it, it meant that it could hurt his reputation as a religious leader. And when he found Jesus, he fell at Jesus' feet and he begged him, come to my house, heal my daughter. Again, you and I, we would have done the same thing, wouldn't we? And Jesus responded. He immediately began making his way to the home of Jairus. <clears throat> now, it's at this point in the story that we get this story within a story. And so as he was going towards the home of Jairus, here's what we read uh, at the end of verse 42, it says, As Jesus was on his way, the crowds, the crowds almost crushed him. They'd also heard that Jesus was this miracle worker, right? And so they, they're all over him. And verse 43 says, There was this woman there who had been subjected to bleeding for 12 
years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Now, just for a moment, can you imagine what was going through Jairus' mind at this point, though? They're heading back to his house, and there's these crowds of people that have gathered around Jesus. And what's happening? It's slowing Jesus' progress, right? It slowed him down considerably. And it had to have been frustrating for Jairus because time was of the essence. His daughter was dying. And in this crowd, there's this woman. And she had been subjected to to bleeding for 12 years. And you start to wonder, I I don't have the answers here, but is, is Luke trying to point out something here? Because this woman had been struggling with this ailment for 12 years. And then Jairus has this daughter that is 12 years old. And I don't know, maybe there's something to that. Max Lucado, he writes about this woman, though, that touches Jesus, her, her chronic menstrual disorder. And he, he says that this disorder would have made it difficult for any woman of any era to be going what she, through, through what she was going through. But for a Jewess, nothing could be worse, he says. No part of her life was unaffected. Sexually, she could not touch her husband. Maternally, she could not bear children. Domestically, anything that she touched in her house would have been considered unclean. Spiritually, she wasn't even allowed to enter the temple to worship. She was physically exhausted and socially ostracized. One Bible commentator, he pointed out the interesting contrasts between this sick woman and Jairus and his terminally ill daughter. And it really shows the variety of people who came to Jesus for help. It just really didn't matter their background. Uh, Here are some of the contrasts. We we have a a man, a father, interceding for his child, and a woman hoping to find a cure for herself. The man's name is given. The woman remains anonymous. Jairus was a wealthy person, a leading citizen, but the woman, she was a common person who was financially broke. In fact, Mark's account of this tells us that she had suffered greatly or suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. She was poor. She she emptied out her money to try and figure out what was going on. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Can you imagine how frustrating that would have to be? Jairus had spent 12 years with his daughter, but he might lose her. The woman had spent 12 years in misery with her affliction and now she was hoping for a healing Jairus' need was public. The woman's need was hidden. Jairus was a leader in the synagogue, but this woman's bleeding made her unclean. And so she wasn't even allowed to enter the synagogue. Jairus' concern was life-threatening for his daughter, but this woman's bleeding was a chronic illness, and she had just learned to live with it. Both of them were seeking a healing. Someone once asked a preacher, should we pray about the little things? And the preacher said, can you think of any of our needs that seem big to God? They're all little to him. But what we find throughout scripture, and hopefully you experience this in your life as well, is that though our concerns are little compared to God's power and his might, they're not little to him because we are a big deal to him. And he cares for us. And that's what we see throughout scripture about Jesus. That he is a compassionate healer. That he is compassionate. James 5.11 says that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And there are so many verses in the gospels that portray Jesus 
in this compassionate way. Just listen to a few. I'm going to kind of rattle off. Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because he, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew 14, 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed the sick. Matthew 15, 32. Jesus called his disciples to, them, to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they might collapse on the way. Matthew 20, 34. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received sight and followed him. And I love the passage we read earlier from Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. What compassion he has. So going back to our story within a story, this woman had been suffering for years and years, but what she does is she breaks her ritual isolation. She pushes through the crowd of people and she touches the edge. She touches just the hem of Jesus' cloak. As odd as that might sound, it really was a demonstration of her faith in Jesus because there was this Jewish belief that when the Messiah would come, he would have healing powers even in the tassels of his robe. And so she must have believed this. She must have believed Jesus to be the Messiah. And so this is why she goes to him and touches him. And this is why Jesus pointed out the importance of her faith. Verse 44 again says, She came up to him behind him, touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. And then we read in verse 45, Jesus said, Who touched me? Now, when they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. Like a lot of people have touched you, I'm sure. But Jesus said, no, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. What a, what a crazy scene here, right? These people are pressing up against Jesus. They're crowding around him. He, he's being touched by all, all these crowds of people. But when the woman touches Jesus, he takes notice. That kind of makes me uh, ask some questions, right? Or especially this question, it kind of begs this question. I wonder how many other people were healed when they bumped into Jesus, when they touched into Jesus. You ever think about that? But this woman, she's, she touches the hand, hem of his garment. Why is it though that he stopped and asked about this woman in particular? This woman apparently wanted to go unnoticed. Verse 47 says, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at the feet of Jesus, similar to Jairus who fell at the feet of Jesus. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched Jesus and now how, how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus refers to someone with this endearing term of affection, Daughter. Do you hear the compassion in Jesus when he says this? You think this woman had been called that recently? She, she, she had to isolate herself from people. Again, she was considered unclean. I don't think she was really around her family. I doubt she was called daughter for a really long time. This was a woman who had been pushed aside by everyone around her because of her sickness. She needed to know that she was special to God. And maybe... Maybe Jairus needed to see this as well for the sake of his own faith because he was about to have his world rocked with the worst possible news. Verse 49 says, While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus 
the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Now, I don't, I don't even want to imagine receiving news like Jairus received. And you wonder if, if Jairus was thinking, if it weren't for these crowds of people, if it weren't for this bleeding woman, maybe Jesus would have made it to my house in time. But on top of the news about his daughter, Jairus is told to leave Jesus alone. Have you ever been in a position where someone says, you know, don't, don't bother your boss with that. He, he's too busy for stuff like that. Or maybe you felt like you couldn't bother your parents or a, a teacher with something because they're just so busy or you kind of feel small. Maybe you've been made to feel like your concerns are too small for someone who, who might be able to do something about your concerns. And so you don't bother. It feels awful to be made to feel small, doesn't it? So they said, don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. Now, I don't know if these people who said that were really all that concerned with Jesus being inconvenienced, or maybe they were concerned about Jairus being around Jesus, being associated with Jesus, because religious leaders didn't do that, right? But let me tell you something with absolute certainty. Jesus is not inconvenienced by you. He's not too busy for you. You're not too small for him. Your concerns are not too small for him. They are not a burden to him. And he wasn't done with Jairus, nor was he done with Jairus' daughter. Verse 50 says, Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he didn't let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. So, Sounds like some crowds went with him. But Jesus didn't want to put on a show for a crowd. In actuality, Jesus often tried to avoid publicity to prevent him from uh, being, you know, from premature or misguided demonstrations of his messiahship or declarations of that. And so he, he kind of held that back sometimes because it wasn't his time yet. Verse 52 says, Meanwhile, all the people in the house were wailing and mourning for her. Some people believe that, that, some scholars believe that these people were wailing and crying. They were actually paid mourners. How important do you have to be to pay people to mourn for you? But Jesus said, stop wailing. She's not dead, but asleep. And when, when Jesus said that she's asleep, he wasn't, wasn't really meaning she's asleep. He was meaning that this death would not be forever. The mourners didn't see it that way, though. It says they laughed at him knowing that she was dead, but he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. And her spirit returned, meaning that she really truly had been dead. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Again, Jesus did this fairly regularly, told people not to tell others what had happened. It kind of held up off this public announcement of him being the Messiah, until the proper time. Remember, people were trying to have Jesus killed. The more attention, the more threats. So we have these two incredible stories that are intertwined together here in Luke chapter 8. And again, they help us answer this question about Jesus. Who is this man? He is a compassionate healer. So I want to give you just a couple applications from this view, from this understanding of Jesus, and really how we should respond to him. 
And the first is this. Don't let others keep you from coming to Jesus. Don't let others keep you from coming to Jesus. When, when you're sick, you need a doctor. When you are sin sick, like we all are, you need the great physician. Jairus didn't let his pride or any social or religious pressures keep him away from going to the one, the only one who could heal his daughter. And then this nameless woman, she didn't let the crowds or her condition keep her from getting close to Jesus to receive her healing. Most of you know I did student ministry for quite a few years, and so often the thing that prevented students from coming to Jesus was their friends, their fear of what their friends were going to think. They didn't want to look stupid. They didn't want to feel embarrassed. And, and I'm so happy to say that this, at the end of the second service, we're going to have two baptisms from two of our students, Allison Hodges and Aidan Ballingall. And they're going to get baptized today and publicly declare in front of their friends when they come in that, that they belong to Jesus. It doesn't matter what other people think. But we kind of carry this, this fear into adulthood sometimes. And you may be worried about what others are going to say or think, how family might react if you came to Jesus. And then on the other end of the spectrum, some people, they, they, they allow hurts from the past, especially hurts from church leaders or church members to stop them from coming to Jesus. I just want to tell you, don't let shame or embarrassment or people or even someone else's sin to prevent you from coming to Jesus. I think one of the greatest truths that's revealed here in Luke 8 is the truth that Jesus is approachable. Jesus is approachable. And if you think about that, it, it doesn't make sense, does it? It shouldn't make sense that, that our God, our Savior, our Lord, our King, the one who gave us life and breath and sustains us, it doesn't make sense how he longs for us to come to him and it's kind of depressing, isn't it? That we, we, we just treat prayer like, oh, I'm just talking to God, no big deal. We, we get to come into his presence and sing praises to him and, and all we're thinking about is what's for lunch. We, we are coming into the presence of God. We are allowed to talk to him and for some odd reason, he turns his ear and listens to us. That should blow our minds. That should blow us away. We find that Jesus is approachable. Don't let anything prevent you from coming to Jesus. It is a privilege. It is an honor. And he wants you to. The second application is that we need to trust Jesus for ultimate healing. Trust Jesus for ultimate healing. You know, today we talked about these two people who received an immediate healing from Jesus. And there are lots of other instances of that in the Gospels. We, we really have no idea how many people Jesus healed during his short time here on earth. Sometimes you just read how he healed the multitudes. Again, we don't know how many were healed when they touched him. Uh, and we can't even begin to count how many people have been immediately healed as his people have prayed throughout the centuries. But let's also be honest with ourselves and with others about this. Just because we're Christians doesn't mean that we're going to have an easy life. Doesn't mean that we're going to be healthy. You know, I was talking to an older woman recently and, and she has more of this health and wealth view of scripture. This idea that, well, if I'm a Christian, then I should be healthy. I should be wealthy. That everything should be great, wonderful, you know. Um, 
And then I told her, I said, I get your, uh, and, and she was uh, talking about how frustrated she was that she hadn't been physically healed yet. Like, this just doesn't mesh with her theology, right? If, if, I, if, if God is a God that gives me health and wealth, then why am I not healed? And so I said, I get your frustration, but you need to understand passages like Romans 8.22. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. All, meaning all, all creation is groaning. It's, it's frustrated. It's deteriorating because of the devastating effect of sin. And that our, our bodies in this present state, they, they weren't meant to last. That's why Paul refers to the body as a tent. It's, it's a temporary dwelling, right? It's not made to stand up to the storms of life over and over again. In fact, I told her, I said, people who were raised from the dead by Jesus, you know what happened to them eventually? They died again, right? Our bodies were not meant to last, as harsh as that may sound. People who love Jesus get sick. They have children who get sick. They lose loved ones. They die of cancer. Now, that's not a reason to stop believing. We just don't know why some people are healed and why others are not. You know, this morning I was, I was preaching and I, I thought of someone who was sitting over here, uh, Al Eagle, who has been just through so much and been healed of it. And then I thought about one of my best friends who had the same thing and was not and died. And I don't understand why God healed one and not the other. I don't always understand that. But even Paul he talked about how he, he prayed that God would remove this thorn from his flesh and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed about this ailment that he had, but God did not remove it. Does that mean Paul, that Paul didn't have a strong faith? Come on now, this was the Apostle Paul. That's not the reason. It's because faith is not believing that Jesus will do what you want him to do immediately. Faith is believing that Jesus will do what is right Ultimately, let me say that again. Faith is not believing that Jesus will do what you want him to do immediately. Faith is believing that Jesus will do what is right ultimately. So your healing may not come today. It may not come tomorrow. And it may not come in this life. But if you trust in Jesus, it will come. The healing of your child may not come in this life. And as scary and hard as that is to hear, it's true. But if they trust Jesus, it will come ultimately. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18, he said, therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Again, our, our bodies were not meant to last. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. You know, I, I read one author He's talking about how God sometimes does these instantaneous miracles, like immediate healings of physical issues or some other concern, right? So sometimes he does these instantaneous miracles, but sometimes he does sustaining miracles is what he talked about. And this is where he gives you the miraculous power to sustain you and give you peace through the ailments. And so inwardly, Though outwardly we may be wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It's, it's so much better than the suffering we put up with on this earth. 
So what do we do? We fix our eyes, not on what is seen, because that's, that's temporary, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Last weekend, uh, Jeff Ranson was out of town and he was visiting another church. And while he was there, uh, he heard this pastor give this illustration and he sent it to me because it was so good. And, uh, and it just fits so well with what we're talking about today. The illustration goes that this, this man, Andrew Wilson, he's a theologian. He lives in England. And he and his wife, Rachel, they wrote this memoir called The Life We Never Expected. And in this book, they talk about the struggles of raising not just one, but two children with special needs. So listen to this excerpt from this book. Here's what he writes. Andrew writes, uh, I daydream about having ordinary conversations with my children in a world free of autism, epilepsy, and hyperactivity. In his beautiful description of the resurrection, Paul says that bodies that are currently perishable, dishonorable, and weak will be raised imperishable in glory and power. That means that Zeke and Anna, those are his two kids, Zeke and Anna in the new creation will have brains that are able to reason and talk as if autism had never existed. They'll be able to empathize, understand social cues, sit quietly thinking, and imagine what it's like to be somebody else. I daydream about that. I imagine sitting around a dinner table with them, only instead of cajoling them into eating crackers, I'll be sharing wine with them, talking about why they like it, hearing them make jokes, and asking about their travel plans. I daydream about, our, about friends of ours and their children, for obvious reasons, a disproportionate number of children we know have, have special needs. Many of them can't feed themselves, walk, or talk yet. But we know how the story ends. As expressed beautifully in joy to the world, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found, like the spring thaw turning sheets of ice into fresh running water, the power of God will extend to every square inch of this world and turn every curse into a blessing. The tube fed will enjoy home cooking. The wheelchair bound will go water skiing and climb mountains. Those who cannot speak will sing and describe and discuss. There will be no more words, no more need for words like syndrome and degenerative, no place for DNA testing, epilim, ritalin, hydrotherapy, or physical therapy. Just as we have been born, the image of, of, of the man of dust, fallen, broken Adam, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We will have resurrected bodies just like that of Jesus. Bodies that can eat, cook, walk, talk, laugh, barbecue, and socialize, and yet somehow rise indestructible. Teleport at will, never grow old and never decay. Oh, autism, where is your victory? Oh, cerebral palsy, where is your sting? He goes on to write, he says, for all of the excitement of seeing a world in which death has been swallowed up in victory and all that goes with it, exploring, 
flying, talking to Zeke and Anna in a new way, he says this, and this is the best part. The centerpiece is always Jesus. On that day, he will be at the center and all else will fade into the background like stars eclipsed by the rising sun. Now we see through a glass darkly. Then we shall see face to face. And so we trust Jesus for ultimate healing. And he's promised just that for those who trust in him. And even better, even better, he has promised himself to all who will believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is, uh, it's easy for us to read passages like Luke 18 and see you do these miraculous healings and ask the question, why? Why do some people get that and others don't? Why do some get healed and others don't? And maybe we get a little bit frustrated. Maybe we even get filled with some doubts. But God, I pray today that we would realize a, a harsh truth. That if we all really got what we deserved, we would all be suffering. What we deserve is, is sickness and disease and pain and sorrow and suffering. What we really deserve is death what we really deserve is eternal separation from you in torment in hell. But God, you don't give us what we deserve because you are compassionate and merciful, full of grace and abounding in love. You are a God who doesn't want to see people perish you're a God who does not want to see people separated from you. In fact, you long for us to be with you. And that's why you allowed your one and only son to suffer. Isaiah talks about how he was a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. And he suffered the greatest, most horrific death in human history the innocent, spotless Lamb of God, Son of God, who didn't deserve any pain, any sorrow, willingly allowed himself to be pierced on a cross, to bleed and to die so that we could have ultimate healing. And what that ultimate healing looks like is a resurrected body one free of sorrows and pain and suffering. Because of Jesus' death and because of the power of his resurrection, we have the hope of a resurrected body. We have the hope of one day standing before you and you wipe every tear from our eyes where there's no more death, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more mourning. And even better than the no mores is the who we will be with. We will be with you for all of eternity. So God, as we suffer through some of the tragedies of life, may we keep our eyes focused on what is unseen. That we have a compassionate God who will bring us ultimate healing. So that healing may not happen 
in these few years we have on this earth. But we, God, we trust you. We trust you to do what is right. And we trust you for our eternity. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The reason we can declare with such confidence that we have this hope of eternal life with Jesus is because of what he did for us. And this morning, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to what he's done for you. Um, And so if you have a decision to make about Jesus, um, Brian, uh, who's going to be our next campus minister, he's going to be up here to your right in just a moment while I get ready to to do a baptism. But we would love to talk with you. Or maybe just today you need some prayer. Maybe you need someone to come alongside of you and, and pray for a healing for you or for a loved one. And so again, if you have a decision to make, he'll be up here to your right in just a moment as we sing this song. Would you stand and sing this?